Hey, glad you guys are here. It's a rainy night and it took a little extra effort to make it and so good for you on the deal. I think I've only got one announcement tonight and that is that uh, this is the last mine of 2011 and we will resume again on January 10th. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. January 10th. Uh, we'll be, we will be uh, back in the room uh, and going full steam again. So be sure and put that uh, you know, on your calendar and um, show up next week and you can have a cup of coffee. Okay. Hey, grab your Bibles. We're going to dive in and see how far we can get in Ephesians. I think we're in chapter 4, if I've got that right. I know I've missed a couple weeks. I, I was sick. Um, man, I was sick two Sundays ago during the service and during the sermon. Went home, tried to get well uh, for most of the week, and I was sick last Sunday during the service and sermon. And if you were here in third service, I just apologize because I, I like ran out of steam halfway through, and I'm not sure what I said after the first five minutes. So um, if you're a third service attender, I'm sorry. Hey, Ephesians chapter 4, uh, we're going to start in verse 1. If you're not familiar, uh, feel free to raise your hand, stop us. We'll try to take time to answer your question. Uh, if not everybody's interested in that question, we may say, hey, come meet us at the end, and uh, we'll talk with you a little bit then. But let's dig right in. It's Ephesians uh, chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Uh, this is Paul again saying, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. All right, so we had talked about this a couple weeks ago when we were here. Why does Paul refer to himself as a prisoner? Because why? Because he's in prison. Uh, this is he is physically in prison. The thing that's remarkable about the statement that he's saying is, is he does not call himself a prisoner of Rome. He calls himself a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and he's clearly saying to everybody, "Look, look, 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 look! I serve somebody that is bigger than Rome." And if I'm a prisoner, I'm not a prisoner because Rome decided to make me a prisoner. I'm a prisoner because God decided to let me be a prisoner. Now, guys, if you stop and think, that, that's an incredible statement. Because there's been moments in your life and in my life when, when the company we were working for made a decision that we hated. Uh, maybe our spouse made a decision. And in that moment, we said, boy, look, look, you know, this is, this is because... Someone has mistreated me or because of what they've done. And Paul comes back to say, hey, even in the darkest moments of my life, I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is in control. And although God may not have caused this, because we know God does not sin or cause sin, God has allowed this. Which means God is still able and God is still at work even in the darkest moments of my life. And so Paul in this moment says... I am a prisoner not of Rome. I am a prisoner by the will of God. It is a powerful statement. And he does not choose those words accidentally. Now, the next part of the phrase, though, uh, is interesting. He says, I then urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. What does that mean? Live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. What do you think that means? So we got the microphones, they'll run. What, what is he, what's he asking of them when he says, live a life worthy of the calling that you've received? What was the calling? What is the calling that you and I have received? Tom says he'll take a shot. I'll take a shot. I'm good. Okay. <laughs> I think it's uh, that we are sons and daughters of, of God. Okay. So the calling, and Tom's right on, is, hey, you and I were called to leave the world. To, to leave the life that we knew before and to come live a new life as sons and daughters. And remember, if you remember back about two weeks ago, we kind of had this discussion for just a few moments. We said, here's the interesting thing, because remember, we were also looking at some of the words that, that Paul had chosen to use in describing himself. And he kept describing himself as a servant and what was the other term he used? Servant and... Well, you guys just forgot everything in two weeks. That's okay. All right. Okay, so, so here I'll help you a little bit. Servant and slave. Okay, all right. So he had referred to himself as a servant and as a slave. And we said, isn't that interesting? Because I thought we were sons and daughters. And we came to the conclusion and said, no, 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 no. We were slaves to sin. 
that when we came into God's presence, by all rights, we deserve to be slaves to righteousness. But instead, God said, I will now call you sons and daughters. And we said, if you and I keep that in remembrance, if you and I get that, because here's, here's what I think happens. I think the kids born sons and daughters sometimes take for granted their family. See, I mean, if you were born the daughter of the president of the United States, well, yeah, that's what it is. But if the president of the United States adopted you, that would feel like a pretty incredible honor. You and I came to this as slaves, and he chose to make us sons and daughters. And if you and I don't forget that, then I think you and I, when we behave as sons and daughters, always do it with a deeper sense of gratitude than the sons and daughters who forget where they come from. Does that make sense? See, if I remember that by all rights I'm a slave who was made a son, who was made a daughter, I'm not going to give dad too much of a hard time when he asks for hard things. Okay? So live worthy of the calling that you have uh, received. Okay. Now, what do you think he means by that? What, what, would, what would Paul mean by, all right, so then live up to being a son, live up to being a daughter. What, what do you think Paul would be expecting of us in that moment? What would he say it's like to live worthy of sonship, worthy of daughtership? To deny yourself daily. Okay, to deny yourself daily. To be Christ-like. To be Christ-like. Okay, and, and, if, and if, if you were to ask Paul, say, okay, all right, all right, all right, I'm supposed to deny myself daily. I, I'll, de- I'll deny myself one thing, and then the rest of it I'll do the way I want to do it. Would Paul be satisfied? I'll live, I'll live the morning Christ-like, but I'll live the afternoon like the devil. Would Paul be satisfied? Would he say that's living worthy of the calling? Grab your Bibles real quick. Go with me to Galatians chapter 2. It's going to be the left in your Bibles. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. This is one of those verses, guys, that if you ever have the opportunity, it's worth memorizing for your life. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Here's what it simply says. This is Paul, I believe, describing what you and I have just been talking about. And he says, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, wait, wait a minute, Paul. You weren't crucified. What do, you, what do you mean? What are you saying when you say, I have been crucified with Christ? What does he mean? Okay, all of his sins are at the cross. I think he's going further than that. Because he not only says, he's saying this crucifixion that we're talking about is how I live. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live and not me, but now Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the son of God who loved me and gave himself. So he's talking more than just the salvation experience. He's talking about the sanctification, the living for Jesus experience. Huh? Uh, he left him there. He left him there. Not to pick him up again. Right. Okay, I think, I, think you're, I think you're kind of saying it. I think he's asking us to surrender ourselves completely. Hmm. You use the word surrender. What word would Paul have just used? I think he'd want us to be obedient to everything that he's called us, to, you know, in his word, to be obedient. Okay, I'm there. Huh? He identifies himself with Christ. He identifies himself with Christ, but he identifies himself with Christ in Christ's death. He's asking us to die to ourselves. Die to ourselves. Because if we don't do that, we can't live with Christ. Christ get, Get this, guys. All the other answers were right. I'm not saying that they weren't. I'm just saying that they didn't get the full flavor of what he is saying. And the full flavor, he's simply saying this. Hey, you know what it means to be a, a living worthy of the calling? Uh, uh, that Jesus has placed there. Here's what he would say. He would say, it means I died to myself. 
so that I could live for Christ. Okay? So that sounds really neat and euphoric. So what does it mean to die to myself? Dying to myself means this. I take all of my plans for my life and I put them on the cross and I crucify them. So that it is no longer my plans for my life and for my children and for my job because it's not mine anymore because I crucified all my plans and expectations for my life. That I might live Jesus' plans and expectations for my life. I have died to myself that I might live for Christ. Which is why, guys, Paul would say, how is it possible that God would ask anything and that your answer would ever be no? If you died to yourself. Because you no longer have a decision to make. Because you have died to any self-will. You've died to any pride. you've 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 died to anything that is you. And you've said, I will live only to please my Savior. I will live for Jesus Christ. And Paul would say, when you get to that moment, you begin to live worthy of the calling of Jesus Christ in your life. When you die and he lives in you. We're good? Okay, so let's keep going. Back to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll go back to verse 1. It just says, As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. And, And then he begins to kind of unpack this for us a little bit. He says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Hey, why, why do I need to bear, why do we need to bear with one another in love? What, what, all right, let me, let me ask it this way. What does bearing with one another in love mean? What does it mean to bear with one another in love? To um, basically accept them despite their faults. And to okay, to be willing to accept some people despite their faults, despite some of their hang-ups, despite some of their problems. So, intentional love. Intentional love. I love you in spite of you. In spite of your struggles, in spite of your bad breath, in spite of the fact that last time I saw you, you were a little bit rude. And Isn't it interesting how quickly we are offended with each other? And, and how quickly we take up offense. And, and, and you know what? The pastor walked by and he didn't say hi. I, I got to the back of the church and the usher was really rude. You get that has nothing to do with bearing with one another. Because the reality is, if you're going to do life with me and I'm going to do life with you, we're going to, we're going to carry a lot bigger burden than that for each other. We're going to walk through a lot darker times than that together if we're bearing with one another. And this really boils down to, we had a conversation a couple months ago, but this boils down to, am I a consumer Christian? Am I in the church for merely what the church can do for me? Or am I in the church to be the church? And at that moment, I then am willing to bear you. I'm willing to understand that there'll be moments you're not as strong as I am, and hopefully there'll be moments that I'm stronger than you, and, and, and we'll carry each other's load, and we will get there together. It is, it, guys, this is the wonder of the church, is that we bear with one another. And, and in this very sense, especially in the sense of the church, Christianity is a team sport. It's a team sport. And so any guy or any gal that you run into says, I don't need the church and blah, blah, and I just go up in the mountains. You are denying everything that Scripture teaches about the Christian life. Because the honest truth is, if you're that strong, then we all need you to come help bear with us. But the reality is, and Scripture knows, there'll be moments you need us to bear with you. I'm on a trip in Colorado as a young man, and some of you have heard my story, but I was 20-something, and the youth pastor at the time, I just don't think, wanted to go on the trip, and so I was the intern, and he sent me on this 10-day Colorado backpack trip. And uh, I got there, and it was kind of weird because I was the same age as the young adults I'm going on the trip. I'm 21. A lot of them are 21, 22, 23, and there was actually adult leaders that were there older than me, and so it was kind of, you know, you're doing that 21-year-old man thing, and... and, and trying to make sure everybody knows that you're the leader and can't grow facial hair, but I'm the leader. And, uh, and so we get there on the, and start off from the bus on the first day's hike, and there's this one guy, uh, Perry Perona, I'll never forget. 
And uh, Perry starts off before everybody and just starts going down the trail. I'm going, what's wrong with him? Doesn't he know I'm the leader? Apparently not, because he's just heading down the trail. And so I did what, you know, any red-blooded American 20-something-year-old guy would do. I raced down the trail behind him, and uh, I passed him. I was going to show Perry that I, I was the leader. The leader walks first on the trail, right? And uh, so we got going, and, and I finally established clearly that I was the leader, and we got going a little further uh, down the trail, and he passed me again. What a jerk. And I, I thought, what a dude, what is Dude, I mean, you don't have to, like, tie you down. I mean, I, I'm the, and so I passed him again. We did this for the next three and a half hours to the first night's campsite. And if you know anything about Colorado and backpacking, we were already at about eight, 9,000 feet. So by the time we got there, I was so altitude sick, all I could do was throw up. And uh, as I'm sitting there in, in the throwing up posture position, uh, the rest of the group begins to come in. And uh, we had one group came in, and one of the guys, man, his, his leg was just laid open. He'd slipped down off the side of the trail and fallen down, and the other two had, had to go get him, and his leg was all gashed and bleeding. And one of the part of the group didn't get in until it was almost dark. They'd taken the wrong fork in the trail. And I started thinking a little bit about leadership. And I started thinking that moment, you know what? Those people didn't need me at the front of the line. They needed me at the back of the line. And they needed me in the moments when somebody was getting off the trail or somebody had slipped on. They needed me to be there to help, to bear each other's burdens. And, and if I had been there when they started to take the wrong direction, I maybe could have caught it. But I was more interested in me getting there first, establishing my position, than bearing my brothers' and sisters' burdens. And you and I as the church have got to stop thinking about getting there first. And what's in it for me? And did I like the sermon today? And start bearing with one another. And saying, I am here to minister into your life. And if my life gets ministered into today, all the better. But I am here to bear with you. We're going to get, we're going to get where we get with Jesus together. And I will not leave you behind. Back to the passage. Verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, and just as you were called with one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and one Father of all, who was over all and through all and in all. And and he's basically just saying, look, here's the deal. As you do this, you're going to have to fight to be unified. You're going to have to fight to stay together. Because this only works as you stay together. This does not work as you separate out and start going, you know, on your own path or just say, hey, you know what, I, I, I don't think I, I, you know, I don't think I like what happened there and I, I'm just going to take off. I'll go somewhere else. I'll do something. So you got to fight to stay together. So let me, let me ask you a question. Biblically, biblically, what would be reasons for breaking fellowship? Either with someone or with a church. What would be reasons for breaking fellowship? Is that a good question? Dishonesty. Dishonesty. Okay, what else would we think? Disagreement. Okay, we'll put grace over here on the side. What else? What else would maybe be reasons for breaking fellowship? I think if they... they um turned away and they just started living in the world okay living in the world selfishness selfishness they would say that um, Jesus wasn't the way Jesus wasn't the way let's do this kind of in the context of the church why would you break fellowship with the church Jesus not the way when would it be time to find a new church don't like the pastor. <laughs> Apparently that is a common reason. Teaching outside the Bible. Okay. Doesn't Paul cover this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11? Okay, read it for us. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, 
but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. Okay. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 5. Anything else? What would cause you to break fellowship with the church? Say, boy, it's, it's just time. It's time to get out of here. Huh? What they posted on their Facebook page? Oh. Not being spiritually fed. Not being spiritually what? Fed. Spiritually fed. How about a loss of faith? Say it again. When you lose your faith. When you lose your faith. Okay. So here's, here's the part I'm going to ask you to balance then. When the scripture comes back and says, no, 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 no. Bear with one another. Do everything you can to keep the unity. Do all of these things supersede that? Because here's the thing I'm just going to tell you. I guarantee you somewhere, sometime, we're going to disagree with each other. I, I guarantee you there's going to be some time you're going to hear me teach something out of the Bible and you go, whoa, that's not what my grandma said. When is it time to break? When is it time to say, look, that, that you, it, it's time to move on? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, give, I'm going to suggest to you something to consider tonight. I, I think there's two basic reasons. Some of the things we said would fall into these under a category. But I think there's two basic reasons. One is doctrine. And here's what you need to hear. When we talk about doctrine, we are talking about the foundational parts of the faith. The fundamentals of the faith, so to speak. Because here's the deal. You, you and I can disagree all day long on whether or not it's sprinkling baptism or baptism by immersion. You'd be wrong, but we can argue with it all the time. And, and, and who, at the end of the day, that's not going to change heaven and hell. Okay, It's just not. And, and at some point, you and I got to be okay to look each other in the eyes as brothers and sisters in Christ and just go, look, I, I, I just don't agree with you biblically there, but I'm not going to break fellowship with you because I don't agree with you biblically. You know, there's going to be people who say, I wish we had communion every single week. There's people who say, I, I wish we had communion once a year. I, you and I can't fight over the dumb, you know, all that extraneous stuff doctrinally, but the things I will fight over and what you and I need to be willing to part company over is Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, did He come to save us from our sins that you and I could not have saved ourselves from? That's the gospel. I mean, that's the found... And boy, if someone gets off of that and somebody wants you to do something else or get distracted with something else and forget the gospel, well, then Godspeed to you. I need to be somewhere the gospel's not being lost, not being trampled on. Okay? So I just want to encourage you, you can be a Calvinist or a non-Calvinist, you can be charismatic or non-charismatic. You and I don't need to break faith and trust over those, but we do over the gospel, over the essentials of the Bible. So doctrine is one of them. The second one is discipline. And what I mean by that is this, that the lifestyle of the leadership of the church has gotten to the point that it is so outside of the bounds of Scripture Okay, and here's here's what you get to know. <laughs> this can't be, um, hey, I think Lynn was rude on Sunday, or I think the guy teaching our Bible study was a little bit prideful. That's not what we're talking about. But it comes to a point where you say there is a lifestyle of sin that I believe God is going to have to discipline. I believe God is now going to have to bring discipline within the church because there's such excessive greed. We're, they're buying jets. Um, there's dishonesty in the leadership. Uh, there's sexual immorality within the leaders of the church. And at that point, get out, get out, get out, because you don't want to be there when the spanking comes. Or you might get hit in the spanking. Okay? So doctrine, and then a church or the leadership of the church living in such a way that it invites spiritual discipline. Those are the reasons. But I think Scripture would say beyond those two things, you fight, you fight, you fight to keep the unity of the faith, to bear with each other. And guys, part of the process sometimes is, is simply giving your brother or sister time to figure out that what they're doing maybe is not the best thing. You ever had someone come to you and say, boy, you were really prideful with that, or, or maybe, maybe you were pretty harsh, and your first initial answer was, no, I wasn't. 
And then you thought about it for a while. And you went, you know what, I probably was. And one of the things we do to bear with each other is we give each other time to figure out that maybe we could have done it better. It's part of bearing with each other. Does that make sense? Okay, good. And here's what you need to know. I'm not on a hobby horse tonight because somebody got mad or said anything. Matter of fact, the reason it was a great night to talk about some of that stuff is because I don't know anybody that's mad right now or doing anything. And so it's a good time to just say, hey, when we're, you know, no one's in a discussion this way, what does it mean to bear with each other? Okay. All right. So back to the scripture. Here we go. All right. We're about to get into a really interesting uh, part of scripture here. Here we go. See if you can help me with this. Uh, Verse seven. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Okay. This is why it says, and we'll get into what it says next. But I think it's an interesting phrase there that says, to, to each one of us, grace has been given to the measure that Christ apportioned it. What does that mean? He's given you a measure of faith that is equal to your maturity at that time. Okay, I want to I stay away from us changing the words. I want to stay with the word grace. He's given us a measure of grace. Okay, and I, I agree with you. There's uh, there's a whole faith discussion that we can do. I just don't think that's necessarily what this verse is doing right here. So he is giving this. He, all right. So let's let's do this. Here's a person. Here's a person. Okay. So two different people. Okay. And it says to one he gives grace. Okay. And to another one he gives grace. As he apportions it. So by the, very, by the very statement that he has made, and let me see if you can, we agree with this, one person might get that much grace, and one person might get that much grace. Because he's apportioning different amounts of grace to people. Does it have anything to do with, like, we live in... We got born in, like, Chandler, Arizona. We ended up here, and, you know, there, there's, like, the poor little kids in Africa that don't really have much of a chance. Yeah, I don't, I don't think he's talking about saving grace here. I don't think he's talking... I don't think this is a salvation conversation right now. Because, and here's why I don't think that. The entire passage right now has been talking about how to conduct yourself as a Christian in the church. Right? So I don't think he's all of a sudden jumped to talking about a salvation topic. I think he's talking about Christians who are given different measures of grace. And one Christian may get a whole bunch of grace, and one person may get not as much grace. Is that possible? Um, Pastor Lynn, is it regarding sin? Like, you know, I mean, God knows all things, and he knows Uh we're going to sin tomorrow and the whole nine yards. Could it be that? See, if I think if it was sin, then we'd be back on a salvation conversation again. I don't think this is about sin. Is this a, a level of, or, or would this be referring to like spiritual gifts in the way that he wires us uh, to do his work? And I'm glad you said that because some theologians are going to say that. Some theologians are going to say this is a conversation about some person, you know, some people are given like level nine gifts and talents and abilities for God and some are given level eight gifts and the talents. And as a matter of fact, later on in the passage, is actually going to talk about some of the offices that are in the church. I, I'm not, I don't think that's what's happening here, though. But you wouldn't be too far, because a lot of theologians would go there with you. Could it be like in the Old Testament when the, when the prodigal, prodigal son came home? He was given, you know, faith, and he'd been a bad dude. Right. And his brother was, you know, everything. Could it, and didn't need as much grace. Yeah. Could it be that some people really need a lot of grace <laughs> because they've been bad? Right. Right. And then good people like us, we don't need that. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. okay. There you go. Okay. So we'd be all the little grace people in this room and the big grace people would be out there. And here's the thing. I don't think, and again, you've kind of taken it back to a salvation thing because the whole prodigal son story, well, no, I guess it's not. It's actually a Christian coming home. I don't, I don't think that's what it is. Good guess, though. I love Pastor guess. Lynn, is he talking yeah. about grace as far as peace or joy in our lives? Maybe. Maybe. 
Okay, let me, let me, all right, do that and then. Yeah, I was thinking maybe it was to teach us to learn and grow. Sort of. We're getting closer. Let me, let me, let me just toss something out in the room, see what you think. Have you ever seen somebody, maybe someone in your family, maybe, uh, maybe someone that was just in your circle of influence, and something horrible happened in their lives? It, and whatever that, you know, loss of a job, a friend's betrayal, cancer, I, I don't And in that moment, they live that moment, and here's the phrase we would sometimes use, with so much grace that we can't understand how they can hold it together and how they can live that moment so well. You ever lived that moment? You ever looked and said, man, if, if that same thing were happening, I don't know if I could do what they're doing right now. Ever seen that or felt that way? Is it possible that when you and I go through hardship, this gets back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Remember he says, I will not let any temptation come on or trial come on you that you will not be able to resist with my help. That what it's really saying, what's saying here is that this, when you and I suffer in a moment, when there's a horrible moment in our lives, whether that's a friend's betrayal, whether that's someone who lied to us, whatever that is, that in that moment, God offers you and I enough grace to be able to live that moment well. But it's up to us to choose the grace or not choose the grace. But there is always sufficient grace, which I would then argue would be, if you're going through horribly, horribly hard times, God will offer you more grace, more sustaining grace then he may offer me because I'm not going through hard times right now. I don't need that measure of grace in my life right now. Does that make sense at all? So I think it's one of those part of that promise just says, you will not live a moment that there's not enough of God's grace to live that moment well. Are we okay so far? Okay, you don't have to agree, but so far. Because here, here's the other side of this, and, and here's why I think this is an important kind of conversation right now, is because if this is true, if in the moment that I need the grace then God offers me enough grace to live that moment. This also explains something else that happens in our lives and I think works as a great caution. Have you ever watched somebody who was... Let, let's do this. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's a gal and her husband and her have split up and it's been horrible. It's been a horrible split up. And horrible things were said. Okay? You're the gal's relative. You're either the brother or you're the sister. And now, are you ready for this? The jerk is coming back. And he's asking to be forgiven. And suddenly she's saying, okay, I'll forgive you. And you are standing there going, what? Why would you forgive that jerk? How in the world, how in the world, how in the world can you do that after what they did to you? Ever been in that moment? Here's what I'm going to suggest. That because she is the one that lived it, guess who God gave the grace to? Her. She was the one given sufficient grace to be able to forgive you're the brother, you're the sister, and why you're struggling with it right now is because it wasn't your offense. You weren't the one wounded. You weren't the one injured. So guess what you did not receive? The sufficient grace. Because it's not your offense. Which I think is one of the reasons the Scripture warns us and says, do not take up the offenses of others. It's not your offense. You may be there as a counselor. You may be there to encourage and help. But do you know what the truth is? Chances are that brother or that sister will have a harder time forgiving him than she will. Because she was given the grace. He wasn't. She wasn't because it wasn't an offense against them. And they didn't receive the grace for it. 
And I'm going to tell you that there's all sorts of Christians who are deeply, deeply bitter, not for things that happen to them, but for things that happen to someone else. And here's the crazy part. And the person that it happened to has already forgiven the problem, but they're still angry about it. And I think it's revealed in this passage. I think part of it's hinted to in this passage because they were not the offended. They were not given the grace and they have taken up someone else's offense that was never theirs to carry. And the only way you get rid of that is to say, hey, God, this wasn't mine. I've taken this up for someone else. I'm setting it down because it's not mine to forgive in the first place. Yep. Hey, Lynn, um, how do you, you said it's there if you choose, if you choose the grace? Yes, I think in this situation, I think, I think in, I think in all sorts of situations where there are problems, where I feel I've been wounded, where I feel I've been treated unfairly, where maybe sometimes I even think, hey, uh, this is overwhelming and I just don't know how to navigate this moment. I can either choose to live in the grace of God or I can choose to do it in my own strength. And I've got to choose what to do next. And the, the, the tough part about it is I, it, I, it doesn't matter how I feel. It's what I choose to do next that's going to change everything. That's why a lot of times we talk to people about forgiveness. We say, guys, you can't wait till you feel like forgiving to forgive. Because if you wait till you feel like forgiving, you will probably never forgive. But you choose to step into the grace of God and choose to forgive. I decide to forgive. I don't feel like forgiving. There are moments, hey guys, there are moments your kids need your love and you don't feel loving as a parent. Let's be honest. It's two o'clock in the morning and you wake up because they're coughing and you go, oh, it's so wonderful to be a parent. I'm so glad I'm a parent. You don't do that. If you're like me, you go, oh, come on, two in the morning. But you choose to get out of bed. You choose to be loving. Does that make sense? Okay. And then there are the great moments when you feel loving, but you choose to live in the grace. Yep. Pastor Lynn, I think what you say is correct. Um, I'm a bone marrow uh, transplant survivor, and the whole thing that I went through, the whole ordeal, had nothing to do with me. It was all through God's will because I'm one of those people, I cry over a broken nail. So it wasn't my inner strength, it was God's strength. Mm-hmm. And so I think he was giving me grace. And in that moment, he gave you enough grace to do that, exactly. right? Yes. Yeah. It's an interesting idea. I just, I just want to put it out there. I want you to think about it. But here's what I think. I think it explains why the person who's been offended often has an easier time forgiving the offender than people that are close relatives and friends who often end up more bitter than the person who was actually hurt because they've taken up an offense that was not theirs and there is not grace for it because it's not their offense. Okay? So just something for you to think about. Okay. How much time do we have? Let's see, we've got approximately 10 minutes. Okay, all right, we're going to blaze through this next part. We're going to burn your brains out, okay? We're going to leave you all Christmas mad at me. Here we go. All right. Uh, Here's what you need to hear me say. The next part that we're going to talk about, you do not, do not, do not have to agree with me. It doesn't matter. This is probably not what your grandma ever told you about the Bible. Um, But it's an interesting passage in Scripture, and I want to leave your heads just cooking a little bit uh, over the holidays. Here we go. Here's what it says. Uh, Let's go back to verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, who's he? Who? Okay, this is easy, guys. This is 80% of the time. Jesus. Okay, all right. When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train, and he gave gifts to men. What does it mean that he ascended, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions... He was, who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. What in the world is that? Jesus is on a magic mountain ride. What is it? Is he talking about that Jesus went into the depths to um, battle death with Satan to conquer it? Okay, so Jesus goes into the depths of what? I don't think there's no 
That's not an apple, guys. That's it's the earth and hell on the inside. Here's here's the thing, guys. I, so so here this opens up that whole historical question. Does Jesus after the cross does he go and burn in hell? If you're Catholic, does he go to purgatory? He led the captives free from there. Who were the captives? Don't they talk about Abraham's bosom? Hmm. Okay. So let me, because we only got 10 minutes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a couple of the answers and not make you work quite as hard for it. Here's the thing. I'm going to tell you that I think it's unbiblical that Jesus goes to hell and burns. Okay? I think that is absolutely unbiblical. Here's why. The price for sin is not burning in hell. Hell is a storage tank. It is not the price. Because here's the deal. If Jesus goes to hell to burn for your sins, then how come he gets the easy way and gets out in three days? And everybody else has to stay for eternity. And so I just do not believe biblically that Jesus is in hell screaming in the fire. I don't think that is a biblical picture whatsoever. The price, the wages of sin is what? Death. Not hell, death. And the biblical, the biblical mandate and the biblical illustration has always been the innocent dies for the guilty. The lamb dies in the Old Testament. The lamb of God dies in the New Testament. Death is always the penalty of sin, not hell. Hell is simply the storage tank of the dead who have rejected God. Okay? So I do not believe, I do not think it's a biblical idea, I don't think Scripture supports it whatsoever that Jesus burns for those three days when he's off the cross. But this is an interesting passage because this passage says, hey, wait a minute. He, he, uh, he ascended on high. He led captives in his train. My question is, who are the captives? And he gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than the heavens. Grab your Bibles real quick with me, and I'm going to make the problem even harder. Go with me to the book of John. John chapter 20, verse 17. Okay, so here's the moment. Let me describe the moment that we'll get to the verse. Jesus has died on the cross. He's been in the grave. He's been in the, he's, his body has been in the tomb for the three days. He has now resurrected. The women have come to find that the tomb is empty. And then they run into Jesus. Remember, they think he's the gardener. Okay, and probably because they've been crying so much and they're not seeing where clearly, okay? And then he identifies. So this is, it, you know, Jesus says to her, Mary, it's me. And she, so let's go to verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And then verse 17, Jesus said, so here's what you got to get. Understand, Jesus has been dead for how long now? Three days. Now she's seen the resurrected Jesus. Do not hold on to me, for I have not returned to the Father. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Jesus has been dead for three days. He hasn't been with the Father. Where has Jesus been for three days? I think Ephesians 4 just told you that he descended. But I also told you I didn't think he burned in hell. Isn't that interesting? When we come back in January... No, I'm teasing. All right, so... Let me let me see if I can answer this for you real quickly. All right. So grab your Bibles one more time. Go with me now to John chapter... No, I'm sorry. Luke chapter 16. Not John. Luke. Luke chapter 16. Starting in verse 19. Here, here's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. It says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every single day. At the gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with uh, sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came to lick his sores. And the time came for the beggar when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to where? To heaven, right? To where? What does it say? Abraham's side. Isn't that interesting? And the rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, there was, he was in torment. And he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Isn't it interesting that if, if Abraham's side and heaven are the same thing, why isn't the man talking to God? Father Abraham, have pity on me. 
have, uh, send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony uh, in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides, all this between us and you is what? A great chasm. Okay. So if I'm getting the scripture right, Here's the rich man, he's in torment, here is Lazarus, and he's with Abraham, and between them is a great chasm. Isn't that what it just said? Okay. So, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from, us, from there to us. And then you remember the rest of the story, he says, Then I, then I beg you, Father, uh, send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers, let them be warned them so that they will not come also to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Okay, so get the moment. Here is Lazarus. He's next to Abraham. There is a chasm in between. The rich man is, where's the rich man? And he can look across the chasm and see those on the other side. Isn't that an interesting thing? Now, here's the deal. Maybe that's a parable. Is Luke 16 a parable? Yes, no. No. Here's why you know it's not. How does every parable begin? Parables are easily identified. How does every parable begin? The kingdom of heaven is like. And then a parable. Second reason you know it's not a parable. You have never had a parable in which the person was actually identified by name. He tells you, this is Lazarus. And let me tell you what happened to Lazarus. This is not a parable. Jesus is describing an actual incident. An actual moment. So let me give you a quick suggestion because I know we're tight on time. Here's what I'm, here's what I'm going to suggest to you. Okay. If you're an Old Testament believer, have you sinned? Yes. So if I'm an Old Testament believer and I have sinned, how do I take care of my sins? I take a lamb. I take it to the temple every single year. Day of atonement. I sacrifice the lamb. Right. Does that fix my sin? No. Matter of fact, Scripture says, and God blinked at it. In other words, he said, okay, by that act of faith, I will, I will honor that act of faith. But that act of faith is only a picture of what? Christ. Okay, so let me ask you a question. If I'm an Old Testament saint, I'm a believer, I've sacrificed every single year, and I die, can I go to heaven? How many say, yes, I can go to heaven? How many say, no, you can't go to heaven? How many say, I am totally confused? Okay, good. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to suggest, you guys, you don't have to agree with me. And, you know, one of those word ones. I'm going to suggest maybe you can't. Here's why. To stand in the presence of God, what has to be fixed? Sin. If I'm an Old Testament believer, guess what hasn't been fixed yet? Because the cross hasn't happened yet. And yet by faith, I've put my trust in a cross that's going to happen. Is it possible? I'm just tossing it. Is it possible, and does it help the passage be understood, that God would have a place to wait for the cross? That maybe he would refer to as Abraham's side. That you and I, the Old Testament believers, would go there to wait until the physical cross actually happened and their sins were paid for so they could stand in the presence of God, redeemed. Is that that unthinkable? So here's the deal. Now Jesus is in John chapter 20. He says to Mary, remember, look, 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 look. Don't touch me yet. I still haven't made it to the Father. Ephesians 4 says he descended first to preach to those that were in captivity and to lead them captive. I'm going to suggest I think it's possible that Jesus spent the three days from the cross before he ascends to heaven talking to Old Testament saints and explaining the cross to them. Telling them, remember that lamb? I am the lamb. 
and I'm about to take you to heaven now because the price has been paid. Yep. I'm not real good at this, but okay. Um, <laughs> doesn't Revelations speak directly to that? I don't. I don't know if for sure in Revelation you can get exactly there from Revelation. Here's the interesting thing: all of those Old Testament saints will be in a completely different judgment than the church, in a completely separate judgment from us. So the, something's different there, in that regard. Would, would that be what some uh, religions refer to as purgatory? You know what? As best I can tell, and all the stuff that I've done in studying Catholicism, when they came up with Catholicism, it has no, that Catholic idea of purgatory has nothing to do with this scripture or to do with this passage. It really comes up to a works-based belief that says you have to take care of some of your own sin. So they actually believe that purgatory is a burning place. It's just not as hot as hell. And you go burn off some of your excess sins. And, and I don't think, I, as best I can tell, I can't find any Catholic theologian who got there from reading this passage. And you're surely not hearing me say anything like purgatory whatsoever on this deal. I'm just simply trying to answer the question, where was Jesus for three days after the cross? What does it mean that he descended and then led captives away? I don't know. I, I, I'm not telling you I'm totally right. I'm just telling you, to me, it's an interesting idea that Lazarus went to Abraham's side that he was wherever he was, he could look across and see people in hell. I don't think in heaven you and I get to look across a chasm and see people in hell, as best I understand heaven. And yet wherever Lazarus was, he could. Is it possible it was a waiting place until the cross took care of their sins? Just throwing it out. Remember I told you I was going to burn your brain? Remember I told you you couldn't get mad at me? Remember that? Okay. All right. All right, let's go ahead and close in prayer. We'll send you home for the holidays and hope you come back in January. Hey, dear Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your word and thank you that it isn't always easy and just simple to understand. And, and I just ask even tonight out of some of the things we've talked about that it would challenge us to go home and study just a little bit harder. God, thank you for Christmas and what we're getting ready to celebrate together. The idea that God would come to earth and be a man to rescue men and women. And when we really stop to consider that moment, it is beyond, it is beyond anything we can imagine. Thank you for loving us that deeply, that much. Would you give us the opportunity maybe this Christmas to speak into the life of somebody who hasn't figured you out yet and doesn't understand Christmas? And whether that would be an aunt or an uncle or a neighbor or a co-worker, that we might be able to just nudge him a little bit closer to a cross. And this we pray in your precious name. Amen. Hey, thank you guys. Thanks for another night.